one and having to subtract because you added two. So anyway, but it'll be fun. Talking about work. How can that not be fun? Huh? Huh? Come on. How can that not be a good thing? But this is a lesson to take you back a little bit that Chris started about uh, three or four weeks ago on why to go to work. Why do we go to work? And he had eight motivations. He got through four of them that first Sunday, and so he handed off the other four for me to do back on the snow day and all that. So that's why I have this lesson that if you look at the handout, those of you that are into this thing, you'll notice, wow, that looks like Chris's handout, not like the kind Jerry uses. That's because it is Chris's handout. So, so you're very good at noticing. So why do we go to work? Well, you know, this makes you think about things when you start asking questions like that. So I looked back over my work career and several career path changes, several ownership changes, some relocations. I started last night just for the fun of it to count how many managers I'd had, and I quit because it was scary how many there had been. But they ranged from you know, the ultimate micromanagers all the way to the non-existent or even unknown managers, you might say, in the situation I'm in now. So out of all of that, I put together some thoughts, and I call it my top 10 thoughts on work. So top 10, we'll start with number 10. I don't really mind going to work. It's the eight or nine hour wait to go back home that bothers me, (laughs) you know. Number nine, there's no good way to tell your boss you don't want to work anymore, but you still need to be paid. Tried it a couple times. Number eight, most departmental project meetings turn out to be the boss telling you that nothing on your list is important to get done unless it makes him or her look good. Number seven is you will have that meeting way too often. (laughs) Number six, I would suggest that you apply for a job where I work, but that would imply that I really don't like you and want you to be miserable. (laughs) Number five, I use sarcasm to relieve the tension on the job because physical assaults are frowned upon. (laughs) Number four, when the boss asks, why are you always late? It is not appropriate to reply, the later I get here, the quicker this ends. <laughs> I, I got that one from my wife. I, yeah. Number three, despite what you may hear, I am not resistant to change. I simply resist bad ideas, but I can see how those are often confused. Number two, I'm, not actually, I'm actually not sure if I hate my job or if I just hate working. <laughs> little honesty there. And number one thought on work, if I was paid based on the number of incompetent people I had to deal with instead of by the hour, I'd be retired. <laughs> I actually saw some heads nod on that one. Okay. Well, all right. Fun, sarcastic, but all good humor and sarcasm have a basis in fact. That's what makes them relatable. That's how people can relate to what you find funny and what you do in sarcasm. So the fact that there is some facts behind most, if not all of those things, leads you to believe that this guy's probably not happy in his job. Could be. Actually, I'm very conflicted because I'm very thankful for my income. I, I truly am. God has blessed Vicki and I over the years of raising children, moving children out, adapting to no children, you know, just 
all the phases. <clears throat> God's been very good to us and supplied us. We've never missed a meal. We've never had a night without a roof over our heads. We've never, we've just, God's been good to us. And I'm thankful for that. I truly thank him for the income. But then on the other hand, I have trouble using the word thankful in the same sentence with Husqvarna Construction Products, the company I work for. I'm thankful for the income, but I have trouble saying I'm thankful for the company where I get that income. There's a conflict. But this lesson series has, has helped me with that dilemma. It really has, because as Chris has gone week after week stressing the main point, and what is the main point he's been stressing? We work for God. As Christians, our work is for God. As he has stressed that over and over, I've come to really come to grips with the fact that my ultimate provider is God. It's not the name on the paycheck, which for me is Husqvarna, which for some of you is, I mean, we all have our own employer or whatever. But that's it. my security is not in them. My security is in God as my provider. And for me, that means Husqvarna is not my provider. Husqvarna is simply the lucky beneficiary of my God-given abilities and, and drive. <laughs> He's using them to supply for me, and they get a little side benefit. But the truth is, no matter how conflicted I am between the being thankful for them or just thankful for the income, I go to work each day for God. And if I do that, and that is truly my motivation, then these eight motivations we've looked at here all come into play, and I can actually be motivated by these things instead of conflicted. So the box there at the top of your handout says, why are you going to work tomorrow? And if you remember when Chris first started this lesson, he gave us time to talk about that at our table, write down our thoughts. I'll be honest, I'm sorry, home table over there, but we didn't come up with many good answers. <laughs> but the real answer that Chris put there is knowing why you are working makes all the difference in the world. Knowing why we're working, and that comes down to who we're working for. And um, I'll use the example that Chris used to start his lesson because it ties in later on. He talked about the three stonemasons, and I, I've heard this used of bricklayers, carpenters, computer programmers. I mean, this, this example can be used in any profession. It's very applicable. But he used it as stonemasons where the three men were out there doing the job and a by a somebody passing by, just asked them a question, what are you doing? The first one said, I'm hammering on this stone to get it the right size. All right. The second man said, I'm molding this stone to fit with others so I can build a wall. And then the third one said, I'm working with my team to build a cathedral. That third one just had the glorious vision of what they were working on. So all three of these guys are doing the same job. All three of them are probably doing it equally well from a technical standpoint. But the third one had a much different answer. And the reason was he knew why he was doing what he was doing, not just how. He knew the purpose. And this story illustrates what you can read a lot of management stuff on, that people that know the purpose, that has the power to transform their attitude. And it transforms even the quality of the work they produce because they feel part of what's going on. And so with that example in mind, we lead into the motivations. What is my motivation? What is my purpose for going to work? Is my purpose just to hammer out a stone that fits in with everybody else's? Or is my purpose to build something big and see the big picture? And for us, 
Working for the king changes everything. Working for God changes everything on purpose. It gives us a purpose. We have a purpose for going to work. So working for the king changes everything on purpose. And we have eight motivations. Chris went through the first four, but I'm going to briefly review them because when I say there's eight, I feel like I need to put eight. And also because it's been about a month and I don't want you to be in a vacuum here. I know you all remember everything taught here. I'm not... Yeah, right, okay. But the first motivation, the first reason we should go to work, motivation one is work to show your love for God. We should work to show our love for God. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Whatever you do, it says, do your work heartily. Do your work with all your heart. Do your work, put everything you have into it, not for that paycheck, not for God, not for Husqvarna or FedEx or whoever. Do it for God. As Christians, we should show our love for God by how we are motivated and how we do our work. Motivation number two for why we go to work is work to show your love for others. Work to show your love for others. Galatians 5.14 says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's a scary thought if you really think about how much you love yourself. Now, I, I get irritated at myself, and Vicki will vouch for this. I have conversations with myself where I debate why I did something I did or why I'm not, you know. I'm not always happy with myself, but deep down, I love myself. I will go to great lengths to take care of myself and to give myself the things that I want and need. Do I love my neighbor that way? Do I even know my neighbor? I mean, seriously, when the Bible says love your neighbor as yourself, that's a scary verse if you think about it. It's a verse you can read and it feels good if you don't think about it. But love your neighbor as yourself. We should work to show our love for others, to show our love for our employer, whether we're thankful for them or not. Show our love for them by giving them the honest work that they're paying for. So motivation number two, show your love for others. Motivation number three, work to reflect God's image. Work to reflect God's image. We saw that the image of God is reflected in us in three ways. First, the way that we uniquely relate with God. As of all the creatures in the world, we uniquely relate to God because we can be his, we're created in his image. And as Christians, we're his beloved children. I'm his beloved child. Does that show in my work relationships? Also, we reflect God's image in the way we uniquely represent God. We represent God. In Galatians, it says we're his ambassadors. An ambassador is a representative. In my workplace, I'm God's representative. How well do I do? How well do we do at representing God? But that's how we're to reflect God's image. And then thirdly, we reflect God's image in the way we uniquely rule under God over our responsibilities. How well are we, how, how good are we at being stewards of what he's given us? Whether it's finances, time, work relationships, whatever it is, how well do I represent God and how I rule over the things he's given me to do? And this is a note I made back when Chris was teaching this. And I, a note to parents. Children watch. Children may not want to be what... Have you ever taken your kid to take your child to work day? 
it's an experience. Our, my youngest daughter, after being there about half a day, said, can we go home early because I'll never do what you're doing? <laughs> I mean, I should have known that before I took her, actually, but yeah, it's just one of those things. But they're not watching so much the details of what you do, but they're watching how you do it. Kids are watching. How do you do it? How hard do you work? How do you handle the disagreements you have at work? Are you loyal? Are you loyal to the company you work for? And that doesn't mean you're out flying the flag, you know, just blindly supporting them no matter what. But, hey, they pay you to do a day's work. Do you go to work? Do you work full days? Do you put your effort in? Are you loyal? Kids watch that, and those attitudes are what they're going to pick up from you. Whether they ever have a job like yours or not, because they may not be built like you're built, but those attitudes are what they're going to take. So just a note there on reflecting God's image. And then the motivation number four was work to make a profit for a purpose. Make a profit for a purpose. And we saw three purposes here. One was to provide for your own family. God provides for us so we can provide for our family. But he also provides for us so we can provide for God's family, and specifically those who are in positions of leadership over us in the church, whether it's pastors, the church staff, different things like that. We're to provide for them. But also we're to provide for others who cannot provide for themselves. There are times in life, and maybe it's physical, maybe it's job situation, where people have needs that they can't meet. And we're supposed to help provide for them out of the profit God allows us to make. So we're to make a profit for a purpose. So now motivation number five, where we really get into today's lesson. <clears throat> number five is work to enjoy the fruit of your labor. I like this one. Work to enjoy the fruit of your labor. Anything with the word enjoy in it? Anything with the word fruit in it? I mean, how can it be bad? Right, Bill? How can that be bad? But we work to enjoy the fruit of your labor. God loves to bless hard work. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. Deuteronomy 8.18. You know, it used to be when you were teaching, you, you liked to make people turn in the Bible because it helped them remember where things are and you'd hear the pages turn. Well, now you get people with these little you know, electronic things just flipping around on them. They don't know where they're going. It sorts it for them. It, it's, just, it's just different. But Deuteronomy 8.18 talks about God loves to bless hard work. In chapter 8, verse 18... He says, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. That phrase, it is he who gives you power to get wealth. God wants to give us the results of our effort. How many of you here went to college? How many of you here graduated from college? Okay. That took a lot of effort, didn't it? You had to put time in. You had to learn a lot of different topics. Okay, maybe not for all of you. I see laughter. Okay, bad example. Uh, how many of you, whether you went to college or not, have had the same job or the same type of work for at least 10 years? You've, you've endured, okay, you've endured changes. You've endured having to learn new skills to keep up with technology or whatever. You've put a lot of effort into that. And we like to think, you know, hey, I, I've learned a lot. I've done a lot. I'm capable of a lot. I, we like to think, you know, I, I can really do a lot. But this verse says, in reality, that whatever we've learned or whatever abilities we've developed, it's from God. 
It says, it is He who gives you power to get wealth. Anything we're capable of doing came from Him. But now that's not a bad thing, because God gives some pretty good stuff. James 1.17, it says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from Him. So, if what we've learned to do is good, it's because it's from Him. God wants to help us. God wants to give us the power to get wealth. But not only that, God not only wants to give us the ability to produce wealth, but He also gives the ability to enjoy it as part of our reward for working hard. Part of God's reason for giving us the ability to produce wealth is so we can carry out the first four motivations, basically. God enables us to get wealth so that, number one, we can show our love for God. We can show our love for God by supporting His work, by supporting causes that glorify Him with the, with the wages He helps us earn. The second, uh, we can show our love for others. We can assist people that are can, in need. We can give gifts to those we love. God gives us the ability to gain wealth so we can fulfill these other motivations. Number three, reflect God's image. God is a giver. You know, I mean, not only did he give his son, but he gives us perfect gifts. God, God is a giver. And if we're to reflect his image, we need to give. And now for some of you, that's just like, that's your nature. And then there's some of us that giving is a learned thing. It's, don't always see the need, but you know, you, you have to work at it. But we, we are to be givers to reflect God's image. And then fourth, make a profit for a purpose. God gives us the ability to gain wealth. He gives us the, the knowledge, the skills to gain wealth so we can provide for our family and the church and for those that are in need. So if we enjoy the fruit of our labor the way God wants us to, we'll fulfill the other four motivations. I mean, this will all kind of roll together. But, you know, God also not just intends for us to use it that way. He intends for us to enjoy it. Turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, if you find Psalms, that big book kind of in the middle of the Bible, next is Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes, I can't even say it that many times. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 18. But God wants us to enjoy the results of our labor. Now in chapter 4, in the first part of chapter 5, Solomon's gone through here in Ecclesiastes, and he's talked about the futility of various things, the futility of work without purpose, the futility of political success, false worship, hoarded riches. He's talked about a lot of things that we can just see in our life and be frustrated by, and they're futile. But in verse 18, he kind of concludes this section, and he says, Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him. For it is his heritage, or it is his reward. It's his reward. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. He says it's the gift of God for you to enjoy the fruit of your labor. We should be motivated because God has given us the ability to get wealth so that we can enjoy the fruit of our labor. And part of that enjoyment, in verse 20, I found this interesting, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. He'll not dwell unduly 
on the days of his life. Now, this is concluding the section where Solomon has talked about all the futility of, of work, the futility of, of political success, hoarded, you know, all these things he said, these are all futile. Well, those are the things that we get distracted by. You know, the thing that, hey, I put my effort into this, I got nothing out of it. Or look at so-and-so and what they're doing. Or look at, you know, why are they succeeding? You know, those are the things that if we're not careful, we dwell on those things, and that it drags us down. That's where you get that depressed feeling because you're comparing to things you're not supposed to compare to or you're seeking things you're not supposed to seek, uh, at least not seek fulfillment in them. And he's saying you're not going to be drugged down by that. You're not going to dwell on all those things that you shouldn't dwell on because God's going to keep you busy with the joy of your heart. If we truly labor in His, according to his plan and let him give us the joys of our heart, that will distract us from all that other stuff. Because you can't push something out of your mind without replacing it. Your mind's not going to be a vacuum. You can't get rid of one thought without replacing it. And so God replaces those with the joy that he brings as the result of the fruit of your labor. But Solomon then goes on in chapter 6 to talk about the futility of riches. The futility of hoarding all this great good that God has given you and not using it according to his plan. And that leads us to the the next little bullet point there on your notes, where it says, sin enters in when we put our trust in our riches instead of our Redeemer. God's given us the ability to get money, the ability to get wealth. He's given us the ability to enjoy that. And he said, I want you to enjoy it. It's a gift from him. But sin enters in when we put our trust in our riches instead of our Redeemer. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll look at verse 17, because we see here that Paul provides some wise balance in his instructions to Timothy. Paul provides some balance here to Timothy when he's looking in, um, in, we're in verse, chapter 6, verse 17 of 1 Timothy. Now he starts off and he says, command those who are rich in this present age. Let me just, let's talk about the rich word there for a minute. Okay. To me, when I hear somebody say, command those who are rich, I'm going, okay, that's not me. I'm not rich. You know, I, if I was rich, I wouldn't be still working. We might have a better house. We might have this. We, you know, we all have someone that's above us in the economic scale, and they're the rich ones, not me. The reality is, and this was the same in Paul's day as it is today, there's people that see us as rich. You can, you can go to many, many parts of this world. <clears throat> of course, our thoughts first go to like Africa, Asia. There's parts of the United States. There's parts of Kansas City where people think we're rich because we have a roof over our heads. We have three meals a day if we want them. We, will have, we have a fourth one if we want You know, People see us as rich. So the word rich doesn't, you know, Paul didn't say, hey, instruct those who make above this amount or instruct those who have this much in a 401. No. The word rich is relative. We are rich compared with many, many people. So when Paul says, command those who are rich, don't, don't write that off because of the way we view the word ourselves. That's to us. This is all to us. He says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to be conceited, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. 
He says, tell them not to uh, get conceited about what he's allowed them to make. Tell them not to trust in those riches, but to trust in the living God. Now, the first thing I want us to see here, God in no way says it's a sin to be rich. He in no way says it's a sin for a Christian to have money. He doesn't say that. In fact, here early in this same chapter is one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, I think. And that's 1 Timothy 6.10. We've all heard people say, well, you know how it is. Money's the root of evil. No, it's not what it says. That's right. It's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's not the money. God's not anti-money. He's not against it. But he says the love of money, when we trust in the money, when we worship the money, that's where it leads to evil. So God's not against rich Christians. God likes rich Christians if they use their money right, because that will help glorify him in what they do. Sin enters in when we put our hope and trust in riches instead of our Redeemer. That's when sin comes in, when we trust in the riches instead of the Redeemer. Nice big blank white space there at the bottom of your first page. Write this down. Always worship the giver and never the gifts. This, is, this will keep you from going wrong on how God looks at money. Always worship the giver and never the gifts. God gives us the ability to make money. He gives us the money. He entrusts us with the things he's entrusted us with so that we can enjoy them. He's given us the right to enjoy them. Solomon said it's a gift, but he does that as long as he remains at the center of our lives, as long as we're worshiping the giver and not the gifts. And that's it. Hey, Sunday morning sitting here together, that's easy, right? Hey, we're all here together. We've got the Bible open in front of us. That's cool. Everything's great. But when you're sitting at home, you got the nice house, the nice TV, you know, you got the nice car in the garage, you got, hey, closet full of clothes. You know, it, it's easy to start drifting off into, well, you know, I, I got the money. We can go out and eat like this. Or we can go to, it's easy. And God's not against doing those things. I'm not saying that because I like doing those things. I wouldn't say against them, right? You know, hey, I'm not going to teach against what I do. I'd have to change. Uh, you know, I'll have to eat that later. But as long as we remember where it comes from and we're thankful, thank God for what he's given you. He's not against you using it for pleasure as long as you also use it for the other things he's intended it for. He's not against that. Sin enters in when we put our hope and our trust in those riches, when we put our hope and our trust in that 401k instead of in him as our supplier. Remember, Husqvarna may benefit from my benefits and their name may be on my paycheck, signed by some guy I've never met and don't even know who he is, where he is, but they're not my provider. God's my provider because I go to work each day for God. And if we worship the giver and never the gifts, we can be motivated to enjoy the fruit of our labor. That can be a motivation for going to work, to enjoy the fruit of our labor in a godly manner. Okay, motivation number six is work to make the gospel attractive. And now for me, this was a big mind shift. I'm, I'm enjoying the fruit of my labor. I'm having fun with my money, you know, da, da, da. 
And now I'm supposed to make the gospel attractive. It's like, wow, okay, i got to stop and rethink here a little, get my brain in a different spot. But work to make the gospel attractive. And on this one, sometimes the Scripture says something so plainly, we really don't need to make examples. We really don't need to go anywhere with it other than just read it. The application's not as easy, but understanding the principle is very clear. In Titus chapter 2, he says, Urge bond slaves, and again, bond slaves, that's us. We're bound to a job. We're bound to the need for a paycheck. That's us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Like I said, I'll, I'll have to eat some of my words. It says, not argumentative. I, I have opinions. I, I struggle with this. But he says we are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. We're to make the gospel attractive in our behavior on the job. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes, And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. We're to live so the gospel is attractive to outsiders. A quiet life, minding our business, working working with what he's given us to do so that the gospel is attractive. 1 Timothy 6.1 says, All who are under the yoke as slaves or as employees are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. We're to behave towards our masters, towards our managers, so that the gospel cannot be spoken against. We're to make the gospel attractive. Sobering thought, which I try not to have many of because they're sobering. But the only gospel some people will ever see is me. I mean, I can name the people at work. Mike Wyan, Chris Kruger, Peggy Hasey. People that probably will never really see the gospel anywhere than me. If I don't make it attractive, I can't... I mean, Chris and I were talking about witnessing before class. I can't really witness to someone if I'm witnessing about something that I don't make attractive. You know what I mean? If my life doesn't make the gospel attractive, then why do they care what I say if I'm trying to win them to Christ? We need to make the gospel attractive in our life. But now there's some of you here that, you know, you work for these Christian organizations and you're off in your own little world. and It's like, hey, I don't have to make the gospel attractive. Everybody here knows it, Right? Well, 1 Timothy 6 goes on in verse 2 to say, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So, Vicki, when you go to work at Avant tomorrow, you got to be good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
But it says we're to serve all the better because the people that benefit are our Christian brothers and sisters. It's family. So just because your your manager is a Christian doesn't mean you're exempt from this. It applies to all of us. We're to make the gospel attractive. And that should be our motivation. God's placed us where he's placed us so we can make the gospel attractive. Motivation number seven, work to advance the mission. Work to advance the mission. And, you know, this one, it just, I read, kept reading back through this. It's, this is like a culmination of the first six. The mission of God through our local church will be advanced if we're motivated by those previous six points. If others see the love of God in our life. If others see and experience our love for them. If they see God's image reflected in our life. If they see that our profit is for a purpose, and that purpose isn't self-gratification. If they see that our enjoyment of the fruit of our labor is centered on the giver, not on the gift. And if they see the beauty of the gospel lived out in our life, that will advance the mission. Because if people truly see that, they'll, they'll want that. Because that's in all of us to have a greater purpose. It's just people are seeking it in so many different places and not receiving fulfillment. So it will advance the mission if we actually live out these motivations. And we can advance the mission on the job by who we're working for. Yes, I'll go to Husqvarna Construction Products tomorrow. I'll put in my time. Put in my time. Yeah, okay, a little. Yeah, okay, take it either way. Uh, But if who I'm working for is the king. If whom I'm working for is God, that will show through differently than if I'm working for that non-existent manager somewhere. So we can show this, and we can advance the mission on the job by who we work for, how we work, and why we work, what motivates us. But we can also advance the mission through your job by our verbal witness. If we're living out motivation number six to make the gospel attractive, then we can advance the mission by being a witness for God in the workplace. And, you know, that's why, that's why we don't all work the same place. If we all worked at the same company, the, number one, you know, we might not be friends. Uh, have you ever thought about that? No, no getting sidetracked here. But the things that draw you together and the things that might pull you apart, you know, it's, just, it's interesting sometimes. Um, but, you know, if we all work together, who would be the witness at Husqvarna, at FedEx, at, you know, the school district or wherever? Who would be the witness in those places if we all work together one place? God's placed us where he's placed us to advance his mission where we are. And that's our responsibility. That's our command from God. And how we work and how we show who we work for is a big step in advancing that mission. So now, remember the three stonemasons from earlier. I you know, brought the story back. You know, the first man, he's hammering a stone. The second guy is molding it to fit the wall. And the third guy is building a cathedral. And, you know, that third man, that third worker, that's what we all want to be. You know, down inside of us, we all desire to have that idea that, hey, I'm working. This is how I fit in the big picture. I'm working on a purpose. I'm working on a plan, and I know what that plan is. I know how I fit in. I know where my job fits in with everyone else. That's fulfilling. We all want that. 
But what if, just for a moment, let's think, what if your job is like mine is frequently? I don't know what the big plan is. I don't even know who to ask what the big plan is. I'm just emailed a task to perform for someone over in Europe that I've never met and may not want to meet, to be honest. Yeah, you, know, just, you, you don't see the whole picture. And when you ask questions, they won't answer them. They said, just give me this. Just do this. Um, you don't know what the long-term goal is. You just know you've got a project that's due next week. Just get that done, then we'll tell you what to do next. You don't know what the long-term goal is. You don't even know where you fit on an organizational chart. You've been, char- you've been told that we don't make charts that go down past level seven. You'll never find yourself, okay? Um, well, what then? What if we can't get what that third guy has? What then? And there's a Dilbert cartoon from three or four weeks ago. I, I love Dilbert. <laughs> I think the guy works where I work. And... Uh, <laughs> Many of you probably think the same thing, but, and actually, I, I thought about bringing this in so Audrey could put it up on the screen, but I thought, man, this lesson's way too long, I'll never get there, and now the lesson hasn't been that long, so, sorry, lack of planning on my part, but I'll read it to you anyway. It starts off with the manager coming to Dilbert and saying, how many days will it take to finish the test? Dilbert says, three. Manager says, you have two. Dilbert says, I can't do it in two days. That's why I said three. The boss says, well, that was before I used my leadership skills to tell you to do it in two days. Dilbert says, leadership doesn't change the laws of physics. The test will take three days. The boss says, you have two, and walks away celebrating his leadership. The last little pain here is Dilbert bringing the results after two days. The boss looking at him going, these test results look incomplete. And Dilbert says, just like my soul. (laughs) Now, isn't that how it feels when we don't know the big picture? We're not given the resources we need. You're not fulfilled. There's just an emptiness. Well, what then? What's my motivation then? Motivation number eight is work to show that your faith works. Work to show that your faith works. When everything else seems to fail and you can't get that third man's purpose, that motivation, work to show that your faith works. Thinking again about the three stonemasons and the grand cathedral they were working on, there's a quote by Charles Handy in his book, The Hungry Spirit. It says, Cathedrals are incredible testaments to human endeavor. It's not only their grandeur or splendor, but the thought that they often took more than 50 years to build. Those who designed them, those who first worked on them, knew for certain they would never see them finished. I mean, back in, you know, when life expectancy is 35, 40 years, and you're working on a 50-year project, you're not going to see it finished. He goes on to say, they knew only that they were creating something glorious which would stand for centuries, long after their own names had been forgotten. We may not need any more cathedrals today, But we do need cathedral thinkers, people who can think beyond their own lifetime. We need people that can envision the big picture. Even if you know you're not going to get there, not going to see it yourself. We need people thinking that way. So when we go to work tomorrow, 
when you go to work Tuesday, when you go to work whatever day, when you get the 2 a.m. phone call with the pro, you know, whenever it is, whatever you're doing, are we going to work just to get the job done, just to do the work we have to do to get by and get the paycheck? Or are we going to work as a cathedral thinker, as someone that's thinking long-term? Think, you know, if I live out the gospel in an attractive way, and if I advance the mission of God, it could lead to someone being saved. It could lead to something that lives far longer than I'll ever be on this job. If we go to work thinking that versus, hey, I just want to get through this eight hours and get out of here. If we go with that attitude, that will make us a cathedral thinker. It'll make us a kingdom builder. Someone with a view for the future. Someone working with a purpose. Not the purpose of just getting a paycheck to get by, but the purpose of fulfilling God's mission in the workplace. Um, We have to remember the ultimate purpose. In Psalms 127, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved, even in his sleep. It says if we're going to work on our own, trying to build the house, guard the city, do whatever we do, it's vain. Our efforts are just human effort, and that's all they're going to accomplish. If we really want to accomplish the purpose of God in our workplace, he has to be there. And he will be there if he's the one we're working for. Like I said before, that's easy on Sunday morning. That's easy. We're all here. We're sitting together with like-minded people in a place that we're comfortable. That's easy. Tomorrow morning, it's not so easy. By Tuesday afternoon, it's downright hard. The longer the week goes, the farther away we are from this, the harder it gets. The problems that come up, the conflicts, the people that aren't there when they should be there, it all adds up. And if we don't keep our purpose in mind, if we don't keep in mind that I'm working for the King of Kings, not for Husqvarna, it's, this is hard. It's a great principle. It's great stuff we've looked at. But application takes effort. It takes effort. It's not just a thing of saying today, okay, hey, cool. I'm going to post that on my cubicle and read it every day. Not that that won't help, but just reading, it's not going to get it done. It takes effort. It takes thought. It takes praying, you know, God, when that person comes to my cubicle, because I know they will sometime this week. Yes, you've got one. (laughs) Help me to let you react instead of me react. It takes that. It's effort. It's hard. But it's worthwhile if we're working for the king. And his motivations can make it all worthwhile. We can show that our faith works, even if we don't have what that third stone mason had. Even if we don't know the purpose. We can make it work in God's strength. So unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Let him be your guiding force. Working for the king changes everything on purpose, as we allow him to. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for principles that are so practical to our daily life if we will just allow you to apply them in our lives. And application's hard, God. It's, I mean, you know, I've been a Christian for many, many years and far from perfect because application's hard. And God, I just pray that you would help us as we all go out this week into our jobs, into our communities, into whatever we're involved in. Help us to let you be the one that we're we're working for. And help us to be the representative of you that would make the gospel attractive to those around us. Pray now that you bless in our worship service together as we continue to join our hearts around you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.